0: Greetings and welcome to Everything Went Black Podcast, episode 25. Happy New Year. I hope everyone had a great holiday. I hate to start the new year off with a bummer, but uh, Philip Coppins has recently died. If you're a fan of ancient aliens like me, you've probably seen him on that show many times. In addition to that, he's uh, written several books uh, dealing with the uh, Kennedy assassination, ancient civilizations, um, aliens, and all sorts of uh, esoterra. Being the new year, I wrote up a list of goals for this year. You know, everyone wants to say, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to get in better shape, I want to eat better, uh, the very general objectives that people seem to have. This time around, I figured I would actually make a list of very specific things that I wanted to accomplish in 2013. That way, I can knock them off one at a time on my list and actually measure my progress. So if you're someone who wants to make a change this year, I highly recommend uh, doing something like that. I think it will help you focus your energies. I caught up with John Congleton for this episode. John is the engineer, producer who recorded Path to Totality. He's a very, very, very busy guy, so I was really excited that he made time to talk to me. So anyway, here we go. John Congleton. Right on. All right, John. So happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year to you too, man.
0: You uh, you gotta do anything special over the holidays? No. <laughs> no. Working. I didn't
1: work. That's special.
0: Yeah. For uh for those who don't know, um John and I uh worked together on the Path to Totality record by Tombs and that was about two years ago. About yeah. just about almost exactly two years ago. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. We uh we toured down to Dallas and uh Posted up in your studio for just about a little over a week, maybe two weeks. I don't
1: remember it being two weeks, but it was definitely over a week. It was
0: over a week, maybe maybe ten days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's about right. Yeah, and we ended up knocking out the entire album. So, a lot of times, people who are end up recording records for a living, um, sort of come at it from a different a different angle. Like there's. You know, all the big sort of music schools like Berkeley and whatnot, they have audio engineering programs, but a lot of times people who end up doing that kind of work aren't necessarily someone, you know, they don't necessarily go through a whole program to study music or study engineering. So, how was, what was your introduction into uh, audio recording? Um, it
1: was really, really, really organic. Um, it was, um, literally like I was, 14 or 15 years old, and my first band went and recorded our first demo, and I had never recorded anything before in my life. And of course, this is, you know, way before Pro Tools or even ADATs, you know, so, um, you know, getting to go record was, was kind of a special thing still, you know. Um, and uh, we went to re- we went and recorded, um, there was a band uh, that I, like, completely worshipped at the time called Brutal Juice, and the, uh, the bass player of that band, Sam McCall had a studio and um we recorded with him and i just it was like it's one of those things that you you read about where it's just you just you're like all right yeah this is what i want to do it it immediately like made made music like playing music and it, it encapsulated it's something that i love and it's a passion but this is something that i could do yeah you know what i mean it felt like I mean, I never, ever felt, there was never a time in my life where I was like, maybe I can make a living playing music, you know? I I never, I always, I always just kind of understood or felt that, like, that was just something I was going to do because I loved it. And, um, but as recording, it was like, no, this is something that I, I, I I felt, I just felt very zen. Like, it, it was just very comfortable for me, the whole idea of, uh, this process. And, um, that's. I I just I was very inquisitive about it and I asked Sam a lot of questions and luckily Sam kind of turned into sort of like a big brother to me and I he he literally sort of nurtured my my interest in recording and by the age of 17 I was recording bands and again this is before the days of you know I was recording bands on 8 tracks you know and like that was I was pretty much as good as a guy at my level you know I me mean? yeah. and um, and that's, you know, I mean, it was a very organic thing. It was just like, this is what I'm going to do. You know, it's, I, I just knew it's what I wanted to
0: do. So this uh, this initial studio, what did, what did it look like, if you can remember? I mean, was there, like, you know, tape, you know, tape machine, one-inch machine, you know, mm-hmm. what kind of board, you know, what sort of – what so what was the format? It was it, like, one big room? Was there isolation booths, you know? Oh, like, no, no,
1: no. It was one big room. It was an 8-track, and I think he had a Tascam board. And um, I remember um, – him, like, cursing and spraying WD-40 into the faders because they were crackling, you know, like, in the middle of the mix down, you know. There was no isolation. I mean, it was, was, you know... I mean, by today's standards, it would just be so arcane, you know? Just, (laughs) like, it was just... But, you know, it was, uh, to me, it was, like, you know, the greatest thing ever.
0: So, did you uh, immediately go into, like, some sort of internship, or did you just kind of... In a, take the punk rock method and just just do it, and keep on doing it until you can do it better. Like, what what was it's, your sort of method?
1: Certainly the latter. Um, I I didn't I didn't really intern. I was really able to dodge that that bullet. You know, like the whole working for free, which I have a moral objection to to begin with. I, I think that the the idea of of uh, exploiting people's energy and excitement is is pretty odious and. Um, I wish studios wouldn't do that, or at least they would find some better way to compensate them somehow besides, you know, hey, hey, buddy, if you're lucky enough, you'll be able to clean the bathrooms here, you know? And, like, I think that, you know, I think that that's... I I personally have a moral objection to that, so, you know, I've never... For example, I've never had an intern at my studio that I didn't pay in some capacity, like, monetarily. Um, You know, um, so... Basically, to answer your question, though, I, um, I mean, I, I just made friends. I read a lot of books, and um, little by little, was able to kind of just butter and squirt my way into studios. And when people would let me uh, use the uh, use the gear, and I just would record, I would record anybody who would let me. And um, um, that's 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 basically the story.
0: Now, the thing I find interesting is I, I also have a similar sentiment about um, you know people working for free and compensation and that sort of thing. Um, And I find, like, at least with respect to music or any of the fields that sort of, you know, orbit around the music industry, that because there seems to be such, like, a plethora of people who want to somehow be involved, who have this kind of aspiration to making a career out of it, they're rife for being exploited by people, you know? And, And that's sort of, like, where, at least here, you know, in New York City, just like any other major city, there's you know, tons of, of you know, there, there's a big industry around around music and film and in movies and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, there, there's this vibe of, of yeah, you know, you, we're interviewing interns to come here and work for free. And, you know, and I just think, I, I agree with you. I just think that's like a really shabby way of, of doing business, you know, and even if you can't monetarily pay someone like a salary, you know, there has to be some kind of like compensation, even if it's like you know, trading or, or some sort of barter system or whatever. But, you know, I think once the first person started doing stuff for free, it just opened like a floodgate of people working for free, you know?
1: I mean, the idea is, is, hey, if you won't do this, somebody else will. That's essentially what, you know, the message, it's implicit, the message that, you know, gets sent to people. And, um, I don't, I think that energy and excitement is something to nurture and, and cherish not not exploit and you know um and there are a lot of people that i think are good people who have unpaid interns and I, I just don't think that they go through the steps logically of like you know thinking back i mean a lot a lot of people say hey i did it and i did a lot of work for free too you know um but that doesn't necessarily make it right just because you swallowed shit doesn't mean that you have to force that on other people and
0: um
1: you know i mean it it, it, it when there's dreams and hopes and aspirations, there will always be weasels there to exploit that. And uh, I, you know, I personally would just like to not be one
0: of those people. Yeah, no, it's admirable. I mean, yeah, that's it's kind of the you know the the paying your dues aspect of things. You know, a lot of times you talk to people and they're like, "Well, I had to do it. For, I had to work for free. You know, mopping the floors and getting coffee for everyone, and you know." working in the, you know, the, the salt mine that they own on the side or whatever, you know, and it's just, you know, that's like sort of, um it almost propagates this sort of negative image where it's like, if I have to suffer, you have to suffer instead of, you know, using your fortune, you know, being fortunate enough to be successful at what you're doing to just be like, all right, cool, I'm going to try to create a little bit more of a positive environment, you know, maybe not exploit people, you know. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, I agree. Yeah. You know, I think that, um I mean... Th- this, this stuff is is all over the music business in, in in even the microcosm of indie rock and punk rock you know I mean there's all kinds of like exploitation going on you know um and um, I mean it just it really just takes people going no that's not acceptable <laughs> for it to change
0: yeah you yeah. know maybe with um the sort of you know populist approach that music seems to be having these days where I mean you know things like the sort of faltering of labels and whatnot, and p- bands being have, be able to have more control over what they're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think even the role of, of someone like you, who's like a producer or engineer, in the in the creative process, I think, is is a little bit different than it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Absolutely. You know, maybe, maybe this new environment will probably help people not exploit each other so much, because being, yeah. being a band, you know, like you can actually... Sell your own music these days. I mean, I don't.
1: There's, there's never been a time in the history of pop music, in my estimation, where there's been a better time to be in a band. I I, I can't think of a time, from the beginning of of popular music, meaning like post jazz, to now that I can think of a time that's better to be in a band. It, it's a terrible time to start a band, <laughs> but it's a great time to be in a band. Like I've never seen less of a of uh, less obstacles in the way of the artist and the listener in my life. And I think it's great. I think that, um, the way that how easy it is to get your music out to people, um, is incredibly exciting. I mean, it's not a good time to own a record label. It's not a good time to own a studio. It's not a good time to be a producer. It's not a good time to be an engineer, but it's a great fucking time to be an artist making music. And, um, I mean, I think that that's really exciting, and and um, if you are, you know, if you treat people the right way and you're square, I mean, you know, uh, the, the the good people are going to be able to continue to work and thrive. Um, if if you if you burn bridges and you, uh, you know, you you, you uh, charge people too much money um, and, and things like that, your people won't come back. They or they'll talk bad about you. You know, I mean, it's just like any other any other thing, you know, and, and I mean, I think that there's so much power that bands hold now and that's, and what we've seen from this is we've seen the rise for the first time ever in my observation a middle class in rock music whereas it used to be you were either black flag, like, starving or you were, you know, cheap trick or something, you know, it is, there was no in between and, and, um, I mean, that's great. I, I, everybody likes to talk about how things were so much better when I think things are great for bands now. I, I think it's, I think it's great. I, I, I know so many more people that are able to swing their feet out from their bed in the morning and, and only concentrate on music more than I've ever known. I think it's great. So here's to the, <laughs> here's to the demise of the record industry as opposed.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's still sort of in flux right now though. It's still developing, you know, I mean, it's, um, you know, the paradigm of selling, you know, selling music, you know, it's almost like the music aspect of things. There's almost an understanding of that being free Mm -hmm. and where the actual commerce happens is in the live experience and stuff like merchandise and, you know, Mm -hmm. supplemental pieces of, you know, artwork and whatever, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's almost like the day is going to come where you're going to buy a t-shirt and there's going to be like a download card for like the whole album. You know, I totally think that'll happen. Um, I think that, um,
1: I think, I think we're seeing a little... I think the last, you know, I think it was 2010, 2011, were both surprisingly successful music sales years. Um, you know, just considering that the downward trend had been. Um, and I think that things are starting to equalize. I think that it's been chaos for the last four years, and now things are... People are starting to feel a little bit more sure about what this paradigm shift is. Um, I think some people are starting to make the connection that, um, you know, artists, you know, that, that these records take money, you know, to make. And, you know, I think that a the younger generation is, is somehow making that connection in other ways now. I mean, obviously, vinyl sales are going up and exciting things like that. Um, but, you know, we can't stop the way music and information is exchanged nowadays. That's that's There's nothing, you, you, you can only embrace it and, and go along with it. Now, where I kind of draw the line personally is... I mean, I still, I still believe that artists should have the right to control their music. I don't think that intellectual property as as an idea should be thrown out, you know, thrown out the window. I don't think everything should be just free and you should be able to exploit somebody's music for any reason you, you feel. Because, I mean, for Christ's sakes, I mean, tombs couldn't stop Taco Bell from using a song. What the fuck is even the point of being an artist? In my opinion, to a certain degree, it's like I mean, your your art is saying something to the universe, and if you don't want that to say, hey, buy more burritos, you know, that's 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 somewhat a, a, a feudalist feeling to me. So I do believe that artists should be able to control their work, but I think that the the amount of making money on the idea of a sound recording has to be completely rethought.
0: Yeah, I agree, definitely. You know, I mean, and there's almost like no way of. of that, that that paradigm shift is actually being forced on, on you, you know, by this sort of tide of, you know, freewheeling music <laughs> downloads. And, you know, you, you it's sort of, you have to sort of adapt to that, you know, and I think it's that... It's the
1: wild, wild West, man. Yeah. It just
0: is. Yeah, I think that people, maybe, maybe the, um, some of the things that, I'm, I'm a little bit more comfortable with selling things for less if you're giving, like, a download. I mean, you know, there's so many people who have, like, a chunk of a, One unit's record sale that makes that unit like $20 or something, you know, it's the distribute, you know, the distributor has a markup, the record store has a markup. I mean, back in the old days, you know, there were all these people marking, marking it up. And then you'd have something that, you know, the, and then the band gets a royalty on, on that, which is like, you know, a fraction of a, you know, a cent really per, per unit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but these days, I mean, even if like, you arrive at some reasonable amount of money, say like $5 for an LP or something, or, you know, download, download an LP. I feel like that's like a, you're, you can, you're a direct, you have a direct connection with the artist, you know, as like a fan. So Absolutely. that way, it's like buying a shirt at a show or something like that. And I think that people, people are probably a little more comfortable with that sort of setup, you know, than this sort of inflated price for, you know, a piece of music. Or, or you know, L- Vinyl LP or whatever, where all these middlemen have their hands on it, you know. I mean, there there was a time, like, back, you know, back in the 90s, there, you know, it was Ebullition and, like, Mordam and all those, like, distributors. where well, that was the literally the only way you can get your hands on records, you know. If you wanted to get, like, the Man is Bastard LP or something, right. you had to mail order it or you had to find, like, a record store that carried that, that dealt with those distributors. Right. but if Man is a you Managed had to wait six weeks. Yeah, and then you'd have to wait board. six weeks for it to show up at least, you know. But But, you were pumped when you got that record. Yeah, totally, you know. And that leads to, like, another point I have is just sort of the, um, you know, the the relative ease, that thing, that people have access to certain pieces of information, like music and, you know, whatever. It's almost like, like, I I have this concept where, you know, it even relates to food, you know, where if you're, you go out and you buy a steak or something like that, and you kind of you kind of have that. You, you take the steak home, you cook it, and you eat it. But if you actually went out and hunted, a, you know, some sort of animal and slaughtered that animal, and then used that entire animal for like a month to feed yourself, there's sort of like more value to that. So I mean, if if you can, I feel like in some ways the sort of an analog to music is, you know, if just on my phone I can just make a couple of clicks and I have this this you know record. I feel like it's sort of you know sort of devolves the uh, you know the, the importance of that piece of art to me, you know what I mean I think that that's that's like one of the only things I feel that suffers from this kind of like freewheeling wild west like information exchange you know and maybe that's just you know I have like an outdated sort of viewpoint on it on this this whole you know topic
1: well. You- different i mean you know we certainly come from the same place we've discussed that before you know as far as the kind of music we grew up and how yeah. we got our music and how we got turned on to it and it was a very organic kind of thing and i completely agree you know i mean like it it does devalue it at least somewhat and so there's no wonder that people don't make the connection that it took effort and money to make this thing you know um i mean because it took no effort to to get it exactly um so but i mean we can we can we can sit around forever and talk about this, but it's not changing this is just this is just um this is the reality of it and um um you know um i I miss the old days, but there are a lot of great things about how you can get so much music nowadays, and there's a lot of bad things about how you can get so much music nowadays um uh, um, I definitely. I'm not gonna lie. I do kind of miss the old days when
0: it comes to that kind of yeah. stuff. But it ain't coming back. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't want to sound like a curmudgeon either because oh, I, no, I do no, no. love. I love going. You know, I I started recently, like in the last year, purchasing things off of iTunes. You know, yeah. like um, you know, recently I was watching this site, uh, this Hulu, uh, this is, well, it's not a Hulu show, but there used to be a video magazine series in the late 80s early 90s called Hard and Heavy. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yes. It was like, you know, video literally VHS cassettes. And it had uh-huh. interviews and, you know, sort of, you know, a c- couple of live clips or like maybe music videos of different, you know, mostly mostly metal bands. And um it's on Hulu now and you can you can <laughs> watch it. And so I, you know, I been as a matter of fact, I spent New Year's Eve watching Hard and Heavy. You know, just <laughs> That's how exciting my New Year's Eve was. But um, I ran into a um, Celtic Frost segment that featured the record um, Vanity Nemesis, which is not necessarily one of their more well-known albums, nor was it. Most people don't regard that record as as one of their uh, lesser achievements, you know. Not quite as bad as uh, Cold Lake, which is like their glam metal record. And that, that one's pretty much hated across the board. Now, I went, literally, within 10 minutes, I went to iTunes and just downloaded it, and I had the entire record to enjoy, you know. I appreciate that, for sure, definitely, yeah. you know, because there's, there's always been the stuff you can't find anywhere, you know, you, you look hard, you talk to your friends, you know, you try to check out various mail orders, and they're sold out, or whatever, and you just can't get your hands on it, you know, and um actually, that... Something that I've never been able to find a physical copy of in this country, at least, is that, that final Roland Howard record, that Pop Crimes record, mm-hmm. that's only been available on CD as an import. And I've been I've tried to order it, and it's like forty five dollars or something like that, you know, for for a CD. <laughs> so I mean, I'll, I'll steal that gladly somewhere if I can find <laughs> that for free. But you know, but uh, actually, I have a rip of it, you know, so that's. At least I can listen to the music, you know. At least you can enjoy it, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. But you
1: still, you still are on this epic quest to find it.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's not. It doesn't involve like really leaving my house, though. That's the thing, you know. It's <laughs> like, you know, and I mean, but I mean, nowadays there really aren't aren't any places to go to find records anymore. Really, it's like as touring, you know. Over the years of like going on the road and touring, you, you had like your favorite record stores that you go to in different yeah. cities. Some but, of them are still there, but a lot of them are gone. You know, some of them are still hanging on, you know, maybe, maybe they have a web store or some sort of eBay store that where they're making a lot, a lot of their money, you know, selling older records or whatever. But for by and large, you know, it's, it's a, it's a relic, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I think that's one of the only things that I actually, um you know, lament the passing of because aside from records, I buy almost everything online, you know? Yeah. Like, I buy vitamins, I buy, like, clothes, I yeah. buy all kinds of stuff online, books, you know, but it's only, I only, um, you know, sort of, you know, I have these, like, nostalgic uh, memories of going to record stores, but, you know, future generations won't even understand what that is, you know?
1: Yeah. They'll never, and they'll never understand that weird thing that you would do where you would walk into a record store with absolutely no idea with what you wanted to buy, and you would just flip through records, man. I would spend hours... In record
0: stores doing that yeah definitely um that's my my old bass player josh he from one of my older bands he we would go on tour he would go to a record store and he would look through every single record in the store you know and he had a running list of stuff he was looking for and you know i, I would go to like you know the metal section and see if they have like a voivod record you know whatever, go like look for other stuff, you know, tragedy, like things I had in mind that I wanted, but he would look through every single thing, you know, and we'd be there for like, you know, at least an hour, but, but it'd be cool because, you know, there'd be flyers and you'd find out about new things. He would buy something. I would check out what he bought, you know, maybe I would get into that. And, um, that's how you found out about music. I really don't know how people find out about music these days. Is it blogs, you know, is it Twitter feeds or, you know.
1: I find out about music from bands I I produce or record. Honestly, yeah. like that's how I hear about a lot of it, and um, I hear about. I mean, you know, I just know a lot of people that are involved in music, and they'll say, "Check this out." I think you'll like this. You know, I mean, people know my taste, and that's how I find out about. I mean, I think I feel like in a weird way, I still find out about music kind of the same way I always did. It's just now it's happening through email. Yeah, that's true. Or, or something, you know. Um, so I'm still functioning kind of the same way in a lot of ways. I mean, but, you know, I don't know if, if record stores were still everywhere, I don't know if I would still be the same guy who would go and look at, you know, I don't know if I, I don't know if I, if I really even have that interest anymore, honestly. There's a record store here in town, a great record store. I never go look <laughs> at their records. Really? You know? so maybe I'm not that
0: guy anymore. Yeah, you know, maybe. One of the things that's interesting is, um, you know, just getting back to your, you know, your your career as a, as an engineer, producer. Um, so, you sort of have a pretty wide variety of bands that you work with. I mean, you know, prior to us, you know, doing the album with you, I uh, was only really aware of uh, Explosions in the Sky, which is like, you know, one of my, I would say, top 15 bands that I like. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the Baroness record, you know, or Baroness Records. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was actually, I remember uh, hearing the, the Baroness, and, you know, that was what sort of sparked our interest in working with you after, you know, Gordon at the label had uh, put us in touch. Or actually, no, I didn't even meet you through Gordon. It was through John. Yeah, we, we
1: met at an anchor show. And I with ISIS.
0: It so was actually an ISIS show that we played to a largely um, uninterested crowd at. So, yeah, it was an ISIS show that we happened to be there, and that's how we met. Totally.
1: And yeah. I saw the show, and I was watching you guys play, and I texted Gordon, and I said, Tombs is kicking my ass
0: right now, that's how it, that's how it started, yeah, but uh, yeah, prior to that, I didn't really know, um, you know, what, you, you, you weren't really like a genre related engineer, you know, like there's there's certain guys out there that, you know, you, you want to, you know, hear a metal record or whatever, you know, you go to like Eric Rutan or, or someone like that. But that's why I thought it's interesting that, that you had any interest in working with us because, you know, we're um you know, sort of not really like Baroness and also not really like Explosions in the Sky. You
1: know? But it's just music to me, man. Yeah. You know, like you know, um I understood where you guys were coming from. I listened to a lot of the same records you listen to. Um I just love music and yeah. a big thing for me is I always just want to be challenged and I don't want to be bored because I think that when I get bored, people can tell. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And and, uh, um, I want to be excited about music. And when you are always recording music, it's hard to stay excited. And one of the things that I've found is is constantly do new stuff, do different types of music and and be challenged and, and work with people that you can learn from, you know? Like, learn, you know, like work with somebody work with somebody who understands the type of music so much more than you ever possibly could and just see how they exist in that music and, and 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 just learn what you can and I think for me that's that's been the way that I've been able to do this this long and still really enjoy it so um you know I try to work with the good the good metal bands or the good punk rock bands or the good post punk bands or the I try to work with the good ones you know like the ones that seem to encapsulate the best of what's happening
0: that moment, you know. Yeah, it's just, a, just a, it's a unique approach, though, because like so many, you know, a lot, a lot of people, a lot of engineers and producer types want to be known for like a certain thing.
1: You know, yeah, I
0: have no interest in that. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, the, the explosion in the sky stuff that you've done is really that was like where I knew your name from when when you know we finally m- met, and um, I was like, oh yeah, you're the guy that works with explosions in the sky. Now, is that, that's like a long standing sort of relationship that you
1: have, right? Ten, ten, ten years this year. And we're working together, um, uh, here in a couple weeks, actually. We're working on a movie soundtrack, so it's still, still going. Right on. Yeah, yeah. they're great. they I mean, I would, as I, I think I've said before, I would loan that band money. You know, I just feel like they're brothers of mine at this point, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, the, um, you know, some, some of the things that, you know, regarding explosions in the sky that, you know, there are some similarities, I think, between things that we do, like some of the more atmospheric elements. Sure. And that's kind of sure. like, like why I was thinking, like, oh, yeah, you know, working with John, maybe we can, like, try out some cool, like, experimental stuff because, you know, yeah. we're not always playing fast. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So when when you, you're kicking that project off with them in a couple of weeks and it's for a movie score...
1: Yeah, it's for a movie score. I I, I I can't really say what it is, but it's
0: for a big movie. A big movie. A big movie. Cool. Pants pants movie. Yes. What um what, what have you worked what what other notable projects have you had going on in the last like year or so, last couple of years? Cuz I know, you know, obviously the Baroness stuff you've been working on and it seems like you know, John and his band of merry men is is definitely really suited to the kind of work that you do too.
1: You know? Yeah, and I mean, even more so on the last record, I think, you know, like, they, they I mean, you know, the last record was pretty, pretty far out, you know, for yeah. for anything that would fall, even in the hard rock genre, you know, I mean, there were some challenging moments on that last record. I personally thought it was great, and I, I, I John, John is an inspiration to me, man. Like, he's, um, that guy is just so motivated and so trusting in, in what his what his whatever it is his art artistic voice whatever he just believes in it it just there's no like well what will people think you hear that a lot in the studio what would my audience think or you know like which is a name of course to to even say but it's 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 understandable that people feel that way but like that never even remotely enters into John's brain it's like if he's he, he's not saying it out loud but I know in my heart that he's not even thinking it you know it's like Makes no difference to him what other people think. It's 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 truly about what his uh, artistic voice is, and he's great man. He's, he's awesome. Um, I mean, last year was a funny year. Um, I mean, it was it was a really really busy year, and I did a lot of great records. Um, right around the time that the Baroness record came out, it's right around the time they had their horrible bus accident. Right. And at the time. Like it was literally like maybe one week or two weeks off or something like that. Um, you know, Anna Palmer had her record come out, which I thought was a great record, but she got such a tirade of shit from people uh about how she was conducting herself uh with her Kickstarter campaign and things like that. And I I was literally I got phone calls from like I
0: don't Were, know, were you involved it. in that project? I, I I produced it. Oh shit, really? Yeah. Dude, you know what? That this is only the second time I've even heard that name. So can you go into that? Like I, I look, you know, I live out on the fringe, bro. No, no,
1: no, you no, know? no, no, that's totally fine. Yeah, I mean, Amanda Palmer has has an enormous fan base. Uh, um, you know, almost like cult like fan base. And um, I thought we made an incredibly awesome record together. That was really uh, creative and awesome, and like was really something new for her, and I was really excited for people to hear it. And um, she worked her ass off on it. I worked my ass off on it, and it came out, and it was literally like the the controversy happened the same week it came out, and nobody talked about the record. But, so, but, what I mean, what's was,
0: this controversy though?
1: The controversy being that, um, uh, well, first of all, she made a lot of money on, on her Kickstarter. She made, uh, over a million dollars On her Kickstarter And, um, but the the Kickstarter campaign was quite involved And a lot of people didn't realize this She was selling all kinds of things that weren't even music related Um, but a lot of people Just assumed that she made a million dollars Off the record, which is Just categorically false Um, but that So that put a lot of attention on her And then she got some, um Negative attention because she, um she was inviting people to play on stage with her—string um, players, horn players, whoever. Like, as long as you were like a fan of Amanda Palmer, she wanted to have you come play on stage. But she wasn't paying these people. But the deal is, she she's done that for years. She's always invited fans up to play with her. It's like it's like her attempt to make every show a little more ramshackled cabaret experience. And um, so somehow or another, um, it got out that you know, oh, she's inviting people to come play with her, but she's not paying these people, but she's a millionaire. And of course, um, I understand where people are coming from with that, but they weren't really paying attention to the actual facts or anything. And so right as the record came out, unfortunately, she got all this negative press. And uh, it's like, you know, the typical thing that happens in the in the internet world now where um, one, one person picked up an New story, and and then you know another person picked up the new story, and then like I was getting phone calls from from people at at um every like major news publication like wanting a quote from me about it, and you know I was just the guy who fucking produced the record. I had nothing to do with any of this, but um it was uh, that happened, and then the Baroness thing happened, or maybe vice versa, uh, and it just seemed like such a bummer because those were two records that I thought the artist put their heart and soul into. And um, you know, with Baroness, people only talk about the bus accident, and with Amanda, they only talk about this PR accident, and it and it kind of put things in a weird, weird place for me in my brain, where it's like, wow, it really, really doesn't feel like it's about the music. Um, I think both bands made great records, uh, and I think that critically, they they've been noticed for that. But um, you know, I mean, Baroness got way more press for crashing their bus for their record, I feel, you know, and that made me sort of sad. It's like, it's like we have become like a tabloid indie rock or something.
0: Hmm. I'm a, should I know who Amanda Palmer is? Honestly? I mean, you know, totally without any ego, man. Cause like, uh, I have no, before any of this, no. I had she no idea her. who she was. She used to play in uh, the, the Dresden dolls. Okay. and, um,
1: and she started it, she kicked off a solo career. This was her second solo record, and she's definitely sort of on the fringe. Like, it's a total cult thing. Um, But, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, there there you have it. She's, like, it's, um, her music is uh, very um, cabaret and and theatrical, but she's way into things like The Swans, for example. Oh, okay. Things like that, you know. It's it's dark, but it's also sort of playful, and it's very verbose and lyrical. Um, It's got, yeah, I mean... I mean, I think she's great. I think she's brilliant
0: at what she does. Because, honestly, um, New Year's Eve is the first time I heard of Amanda Palmer. Someone was, like, one of the people that was um, involved in my New Year's Eve celebration of watching hard and heavy videos. Somehow mentioned something about Amanda Palmer. And I'm like, I don't even know who that is, Jack. And I honestly didn't know who it was. But Uh the story is what, you know, brought it to my consciousness. Right. Huh. Interesting.
1: But it, that's, that's, you're kind of, in a weird way, proving my point. Yeah. But all you know about her is a Kickstarter controversy. And I can just say that for anyone who listens to this who maybe has the bad taste in her mouth about Amanda that she's not walking around with a check for a million dollars, I assure you.
0: All right, so just to get yeah. it, this this story straight, because like these mm-hmm. kinds of things I don't really pay attention to that much mm-hmm. anymore or ever really have. She is doing produced this record and released it independently, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is like her production, like whatever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, production setup she has. The funding for this money came through a quick a Kickstarter um, account and sales of some non non musical materials. not,
1: not yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I had already done the record before she did the Kickstarter. Oh, okay. So that was sort of behind. And what I mean, honestly, the record was sort of done and behind me, so I didn't pay attention to the Kickstarter campaign, except for when it was an enormous success. Okay. Um, most successful Kickstarter campaign ever for music that's ever been. She's number one. And actually, interestingly enough, little trivia, I worked on the third most successful Kickstarter campaign with a band called Murder by Death. Okay. Interesting little trivia. What's their
0: deal? Uh, uh, Motorhead they're, fans? They're, they're, I'm sorry, say again? Are they Motorhead fans? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's a Killed yeah. by Death by Motorhead, so, so you yeah. know. uh are uh, from Bloodshot
1: Records. They're sort of like dark, um, uh, maybe sort of like kind of a little bit of a Pogue sort of influence, but like imagine like if Johnny Cash was singing for like, the Pogues. Oh, so, okay. Very, very, you know, dark, kind of Enoch kind of sounding stuff, yeah, you know, okay. it's going like to be Western. Sure. Good band, good band. Great, great people, too. Um, but anyways, digressing. She, um, the record was already done and behind us. And what she had done was she started a Kickstarter campaign. <clears throat> that the goal was a hundred thousand, which certainly not peanuts. Um, but the the hundred thousand was to pay for um, the album, uh, the salaries for her band members. Uh, you know, for the process of making the record, like she wanted to pay them a salary, and um, the you know the making of the record meaning meaning, like, the actual production of the record, and um, and then on top of that, um, she had all kinds of crazy, 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 like, specialty things, like, for example, she made a seven-inch of each song of the record, and she made, I mean, really cool shit, yeah. I mean, like, actually was able to get a lot of this stuff, and it's really neat, actually, and she made a She made all these custom records, like if you donated a certain amount, she made all these custom records, and she would, and she would paint pictures of you if you donated a certain amount, and like, she would um, come and hang out with you. (laughs) She
0: would come and hang out with you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just shit like that, crazy shit. Well, you know. her fans
1: are incredibly devoted, and um, she beat the $100,000 goal in seven hours. And uh, by the end of it, it was like one, it was over a million dollars is what she made. And, uh, but at the same time, she still had to make and create all of these things um, yeah. that went into that. So um, it wasn't like she got paid a million dollars. She worked – I mean, I'm sure she made a plenty of money out of this thing. But um, I think a lot of – the point is, is that she got a lot of attention from that. And everybody thought Amanda Palmer is walking around with a check of a million dollars in her back pocket, and she won't even pay the people that are going to come and play horns with her on tour where – when, when the, the actual truth of the matter is, is she just wanted her fans to come up and play a song with her every night and it she wanted it to be different people and she wanted she wanted it to be fun and, and she'd been doing it for years it's something that she's done for years she's way into crowdsourcing and and bringing the in like involving the audience into her show it's a very cabaret theatrical thing so I don't I think that I I think I would say that Amanda probably could have handled the whole thing differently whenever it had blown down. She probably could have explained herself and made it more clear. But I think that what happened is a lot of people who basically didn't know shit about her or her situation, you know, decided to have a, an uninformed opinion. And I'm close with Amanda. I'm friends with her. And I got to see how all that negativity and all that stuff, you know, coming down on her affected her as a friend of mine. Right. And it wasn't pleasant. You
0: know? That's such an interesting story. I, um... Yeah, it, it's, uh... That wouldn't have even been pop- possible, like, you know, back in the past. You know what I mean? It's,
1: it ties into what we were just talking about. You know, yeah. Just heard the conversation. Is these things are, are, are completely new. We don't know how this works yet.
0: And most people have a negative feeling about this uh, situation? Like, most, like, the press, at least, feels negatively about this?
1: I think it's blown over now. Okay. Um, but, um... I think what happened was people who were not Amanda Palmer fans took a tertiary glance at the facts. Oh, she made a, they What they saw is, oh, she made a million dollars. Oh, she doesn't want to pay her, her, her band, which are, are both false. But if you just take a glance at the facts, that's the way it seems. Right. So, you know, it's the message board free-floating negativity. Oh, yeah. It went crazy. And then on top of all this, just... You know, it turned into all kinds of ridiculous lies about her. For example, um, because my involvement in this, um, there's a conspiracy now that you can (laughs) see the Internet. I am a Scientologist, and and she's a Scientologist, and this Church of Scientology got us together, and Scientology funded the record. This is a real Internet conspiracy that's happening. Anybody who's ever even remotely rubbed their elbow against me knows that I have... Not only am I not religious period, but I'm certainly not a fucking Scientologist, and I can assure anybody listening that neither is Amanda Palmer.
0: Wow. I mean I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna start another um r- rumor that you're actually both reptilians. Like that you guys are part of the reptilian ruling class. I think I'm okay with the reptilian thing. Yeah. You know, you're <laughs> part of like the secret the secret society of reptiles that secretly run like the you know, the World Bank and Part of the yeah. globalist conspiracy, and this is all part of that setup. Oh, totally.
1: Yeah. You know? We decided to make a punk rock record that, uh, you know, or what? No, not a punk rock record. We decided to make a record that was our that was our contribution to the new world order.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Makes yeah. as much sense as you guys all being Scientologists, I guess.
1: Yeah, but it, by, so that's the kind of shit that happens, you know, when people who have no idea any, you know, when people just it's Chinese telephone. One person tells somebody something else, and um, so yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, to give you an example of how, how, how much this took hold. I mean, I actually got a phone call from my sister
0: asking me if I could become a Scientologist. Goddamn! Yeah, really?
1: Yeah. She, well, <laughs> she lives in LA, and she called me, and she said, "Are you a Scientologist?" And I'm like, "No, I'm not a fucking Scientologist." And and it was it, it was just that was when I knew that wow, this internet thing <laughs> is is something else. Yeah. It's a whole
0: other consciousness at this point. You well, know? you're right. It is actually because, it, and and you know, one of the things in like real journalism is that when you write something as a journalist, you're you're responsible, you're you're liable for your yeah. statements, and there has to be you have to be researched and you know referenced and all this other stuff. But nowadays, you can destroy somebody just by putting something on a message board or sending a tweet about somebody, and there's no accountability for anything. You know, yeah, like. The too. Yeah, totally anonymous, you know, and and it's um, you know, I mean, it, it's that's that's kind of the new the new world we live in, really, you know, yeah, you know, starting with like these message boards and comments on these blogs and all this other stuff, and people are faceless, so now they feel like they have because they're faceless and you can't track back to them. There's like this sort of license to to you know either fabricate fabricate stories or have this sort of uh, ungoverned stream of their own vitriol against somebody, you know, and mm-hmm. it might even just be like a personal thing. Like a couple times I've seen on Brooklyn Vegan, I don't know if you're familiar with that that website. Sure. It's um you know, there'd be like these comments that initially started out about this particular show or whatever, but it ended up devolving into this just, a, a sort of back and forth between the people that were leaving comments about the show. Oh, absolutely. And then it became like a separate entity of like bashing each other, you know. Yeah. And the, the irony is that none of these people probably even know who the other person is. You know, For they're sure. just basing. And they're idiots and they hate each other. Yeah, totally. You yeah. know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's
1: useless. I mean, this to me, this is useless. This is like static. This stuff makes no difference. But what it does is it. It makes the people that are being talked about feel terrible. Yeah, you know. No, I mean, you can. I mean, for example, you know, Amanda. I, I digress. She's a tough cookie. Like she takes, she can take a lot of criticism. But you know, when, when like people are saying that she's a Scientologist and that she's ugly and that she's fat and and, and she has stupid looking eye, eyebrows, she hates <laughs> her eyebrows. And you know, I mean, like. She's a woman, you know, like, how many times can a woman hear that she's ugly and fat before it starts to bother her? I mean, you know, I mean, it's, I'm a man. If I heard I was ugly and fat enough times, it would bother me. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, she's a tough cookie, but, you know, like, she can only take so much of that. You know, it's, it's a shame. I care about her. She's my friend. I don't like to hear, I don't like my friends to be hurt.
0: But her fans, like, her true fans really are down with this whole program. Like, there's, you know, that's... they're fans don't have a problem. Okay, cool. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I was just, you know, when we started talking about media and, like, all this, like, false journalism and lies and Scientology conspiracies, like, that hasn't affected an anyone who's part of, who's an actual fan of hers, right? No. These are all peripheral people that care about this stuff. Yeah. Wow. I mean, nobody, nobody's complaining. The people that donated
1: the money to the Kickstarter aren't complaining. You know, and there's there's plenty of avenues for them to complain if they wanted to.
0: Hmm. Yeah. That's kind of interesting because it seems like in a lot of ways um, there's this sort of, like, compartmentalization of of these different sort of um, groups, you know, where... I don't know if you're familiar with the comedian Andrew Andrew W.K., uh, Louis C.K.?
1: Of course, he's a genius.
0: Yeah. I think, like, that... Like his comedy special being put out for like five bucks or whatever and him making a ton of money off of that is like sort of like a testament to this whole concept that nowadays you can just do it yourself and, you know, compensate people accordingly and be successful and get your your message out there. You know, so I feel like no one criticized him, but but also, you know. For for whatever reason no one that was there's no criticism of him for doing something like that for cutting out some label middleman or whatever but uh I feel like these like these sort of microcosms that are all sort of operating parallel to each other, like this whole Amanda Palmer thing. It's like her fans you know supported her and they provided funding, and this project came out, and everyone's happy. It's only right. like these interstitial people that seem to have a problem with it
1: right example, I mean, she's she has the same band with her that recorded the record and is doing the tour with her. And I guarantee you, if you walked up to one of those people and said, "Are you happy with how you're being compensated?" It's going to be a yes. You know, I, it's it's a guaranteed yes. I, you know, like Louis C.K. What he did when he got his money, he said, "You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna pay the people that helped me make this." He paid them more, just like she paid these people more. And you know, the first phone call I got. Once she broke a million dollars, was how much are you getting paid? You know, everyone wanted to know how, if I was getting cut in on this big breakthrough. And, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, her and I, you know, we had a deal already. We made the record, you know? I'm happy for her that she had this enormous success. It's great. It's a testament to how much people believe in what she's trying to do. For example, the way I look at it is whenever I make, I pledge to NPR every time they have a pledge drive, okay? And when I do, I get a coffee mug, or I get uh, I get a, a whatever. But I'm not. I don't care about the coffee mug or the This American Life CD. I don't care about that. I'm paying because I enjoy that this thing exists. Right. And that's the way I look at it. I look at it as these people saying, you know what, Amanda Palmer enriches my life. I, I'm, I'm not only happy to get this record, but I'm happy that she exists and that she is touring and she is making art and she's doing this thing. It's like, to me, that's exactly how I see it. I, I don't care about the NPR coffee mug. I care that NPR gets up every day and, you know, has programs and it has a voice of reason that I can hear. You know, that's what I care about.
0: Yeah, I mean, I also contribute money to NPR, but uh, the way I look at it, it's almost like, you know, how many times have you been to a restaurant and you've gotten bad service and you still tip them? Yeah. You know, it's like, you know those couple extra bucks that you spend on a tip, you know that's that's how I see like pledging money to NPR is, you know, and I and it's but that's actually a positive service that I enjoy. Unlike I would say seventy five percent of my restaurant experiences, where <laughs> I actually get, you know, the food's bad, services, you know, they're not friendly or whatever, and yet I still tip them. I don't even think twice about it. Right. Yeah. There was only one one time in my entire life where I didn't tip somebody, and it was here in New York City. Okay. And it was just, you know, it was a a restaurant which actually doesn't exist anymore. I went in there and um, I sat down and no one even approached me with a menu, right? The waitstaff was wasted. Everyone was drunk. It was in the afternoon, okay? (laughs) Finally, I got a menu and there was no silverware. Then it took another 30 minutes for them to come and take my order. And I was there for literally like two and a half hours, and at the end of that, I was like, you know what, man, I'm not no leaving a tip. tip, so I bailed. And I, but yeah. that was the only time I ever did that. Mm-hmm. You know, I usually give my twenty percent regardless. Yeah. Yeah. So, how's our how's our favorite sandwich shop, man? It's passionate about waiting tables. Yeah. How's how's our favorite sandwich shop? Have you been uh, been hitting that place regularly?
1: Oh, hunkies. <laughs> <laughs> um, you want to tell the story of why, why that's funny?
0: Um. Yeah. What back when we were recording the uh, the record, uh, the, you know, e- the recording process, one of the key elements is getting food and coffee happening, you know. So, John, you, you showed me around a couple different establishments that were very good in the area. You know, we hit Whole Foods a bunch of times, but then you presented to me this Hunky's place, which is um one of your favorite sandwich joints, right? Right. Sure. Is it? It's called Hunky's, right?
1: Yeah, it's called Hunky's.
0: All right. <laughs> Because the reason why I question that is because I have never been able to remember the name of it. I had you know Chuckies, Spankies, um I don't know, hung hung like hunger, I don't know, whatever. There is other names for it. And I, I actually enjoyed like uh getting text messages from you telling me that you're you're eating at, at Chunky's or whatever. Harvey's. Harvey's, Spunky's. Spunkies. 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 So, um, anyway, I'd like to thank you for uh, taking your time out. You know, it's a Friday yeah, night. I'm sure you got, you know, plans or whatever, you yeah. know. No. <laughs> Did, uh, what, so really, what are you doing after this?
1: Uh, well, I go to Chicago tomorrow uh, to, to work with a band called The Disappears. This will be the second record I've done with them. So, um, he's not a band anymore, but Steve Shelley from Sonic Youth was the drummer. This is the first record i are doing without him. Uh, um uh, so I do that and then I do um explosions in the sky and then uh, I go to France to work with an amazing artist named
0: Anna Calvi. Anna mm
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mhm. Man, you 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 just like move in circles of people that. You know, I've always been impressed by that. Oh, uh, well, thanks dude. Yeah. One time you um you contacted me. That you were working with David Byrne or something like that. Yeah, sure. Like, yeah, out in, in Jersey.
1: Yeah, sure. Mhm. You know, yeah.
0: And I was like, man, John's working with David Byrne. It's, it's crazy. It's awesome. He's great. Yeah. David, amazing. I don't really have any plans for the next couple weeks, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Uh, tonight I think I'm going to watch uh, a couple DVDs and call it a night, man. That's nice, about man. it.
1: You turned me on the Serbian
0: film. Oh, dude. Did you actually, you saw that?
1: I've watched it probably five times. That,
0: Incredible. Now what? Are, what do you? That's all right. Now, what are your thoughts on this? What, what are your feelings about that film? Like, what's your take on it? Did you enjoy it? I think, uh, to me,
1: I loved it. Actually, I mean, it's brutal. It's totally brutal. But um, to me, it's worth the price of admission because what I get out of it is, I mean, what I personally get out of it is a little bit of a. I think it's a. Mm, it's a farce of of capitalism. Is yeah. What I get out of it, you know. Um. Sometimes it's good enough just to have a loving wife and a great kid, you know. Sometimes it's, it's good enough just to have a family family that loves you. Maybe you can't give them everything you want to give them, but maybe sometimes you just, you know, you have to be happy with the simple pleasures. That's what I got out of it.
0: Yeah, and that's was basically, the, you know. We actually did, our first podcast was, was um, my friend Mike and I went to actually see that in a movie theater, uh-huh. In New York City, or in Brooklyn. So, um, the first, very first podcast that we did was post-viewing that film in a movie theater, you know, and just sort of going over that sort of thing. And, yeah, that's what I, we both took away the same thing, basically, that, um, you know, it was a statement about capitalism and or consumerism in general.
1: Uh, you well, know, the fact that it's called a Serbian film, I think, is that a way, because it's kind of a capitalist gangbang out there right now,
0: you know, yeah. it's like, it's like the mafia, you know, what I mean. Yeah, but uh, that, seeing it in a theater was pretty far out too, because um, <laughs> it was, the funny thing though, it wasn't, when I say I saw it in a movie theater, I literally saw it in like a very generic, like it was a, a multiplex theater, and that had like the Thor movie was playing there, and <laughs> all this other, you know, generic middle of the road films, and then Serbian film. I have no idea how that happened, you know, because, ah. you know, it was in, like, a very, you know, middle class, like, sort of, you know, neighborhood. It was uh, Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, which is, like, you know, real salt of the earth, you know, type of people, you know, probably big, you know, sports fans, like, that kind of thing. Um, so we went to the theater, and there was, like, me, my friend Mike, and this one other guy who was a friend of ours, and then there was two other people in the theater, and they were sitting, like, a couple rows behind us. And about halfway through, I just took a look back, and they were gone, man. They just pieced right. out. Like, they just couldn't hang with the intensity yeah. of that film. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, man, I, I, had, I had a version of that, just like some sketchy, like, MP4 file that I'd gotten sent by somebody. So I'd seen the entire uncut film, and then, you know, before I saw the theatrical release, and... The theatrical release actually had some footage removed. There was some, you know, some of the more extreme scenes were cut out of the theatrical release. Do you have the DVD? I have the DVD. Yeah, so you probably got the real deal. Yeah, I'm
1: pretty sure I did. Because the original version I saw was the sketchy MP3 that you gave me.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, okay, so you've seen that, and then you have, okay, and then you got the proper release. Okay. Right. Yeah.
1: I think it's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's, um... I mean, I wasn't any more shocked by it than I was by, like, I Stand Alone or a movie like that, you know. But I I got a lot more out of a Serbian film than I did out of the, you know, like, um, I Stand Alone or or, um, Irreversible or, you know, those kinds of films, which I kind of lump in the same sort of world.
0: The Gaspar Um, No films are a little bit more just sort of sensational, I think, a little bit more exploitation-type films in some ways, even though there is, like, a subtext of, you know, there's something going on in those films generally, but I feel like a Serbian film was definitely a very tight statement about number one, the state of Serb, you know, the Serbian people, what they're dealing with, you know, in this, you know, unified European state that, that they're enjoying right now. And also, in a broader sense, you know, like how consumerism is affecting our lives, because every aspect of that dude's, like, descent was documented and exploited somehow, you know, at the mm-hmm. very end, like, the whole thing, you know. I'm not going to ruin it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but the ending is just downer, man. You just, like, you kind of want to, you know, like, play with your cat after that, and, like, take a warm <laughs> bath and drink, like, some, you know, some hot chocolate or something, you know. It was, like, right. a really intense ending. Um Simu... I don't know how else it could end, though,
1: without it ramming. I mean, it was, it got the fucking point across, man.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: Got the point across.
0: <laughs> Did you see um we might have talked about this too, is uh Martyrs, the film Martyrs.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. That was another really well done extreme film I thought. And that, you know, sort of touched on a lot of topics that I spent a lot of time thinking about, such as, you know, you know, the, the, the uh near death experiences and and uh you know concepts about the afterlife and whatnot and you know consciousness. But it, it came about it in this, like, sort of roundabout way. It's almost like, you know, the, the two – there was almost like two films in that one film. You know, there was, like, the first half of the film and then the second half where the, you know, these sort of death cultists are obsessed with, like, what's lies beyond, you know, life. Yeah. and And even – and the ending for that film, too, was, like, you know, a totally French ending, you know, just, like, yeah. this black, like, bleak. <laughs> Existentially, vo- Existential Void, you know. But those two are probably, like, I would say in the last, like, five years, six years, maybe, the, like, my favorite, quote-unquote, like, horror films, you yeah. know, definitely. No,
1: I, I, yeah, they're definitely on my list as well.
0: I just recently saw a film called Red, White, and Blue. It's um an American-made film. It uh-huh. takes place in Austin, Texas.
1: Uh-huh, I think I've heard of
0: it. Watch it it's great. Okay. Yeah. It's um it's really heavy on characterization too and like halfway through the movie um I was thinking that I was just watching a drama, like this sort of like really um you know sort of bleak drama about, you know, people's lives that's sort of on the fringe of society. And then you know by the by minute 40 things just started stepping up and then you're like, "Oh, okay. Now I know why I read about this in Roomwork Magazine because yeah. this is the reason why it's a it's a horror film. You know, right. the um the guy who's the actual you know uh, murderer in the film looks a lot like uh, John Baisley actually. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I was watching it with Andrew, and um, here at my apartment, Andrew was yeah. was watching with me, and Andrew's like, "That's Baisley." And then I was like, "Yeah, it kind of looks like John Bailey." because <laughs> we'd actually made up names for everyone in in the in the movie based on people they looked like in our right. real lives, you know, like the the girl in the film looks like this photographer we know in New York City, and um, this other guy that ends up uh, you know getting getting uh, well, he does he doesn't end up very well in the film. He looks remarkably like this other guy, who coincidentally is a recording engineer oh, that's right. based here. In, that's based here in New York. All right. And then, of course, the murderer looks like John Beasley. Excellent. So. <laughs> but yeah, that's on Netflix. You can check that out, man. It's great.
1: I will. I will.
0: Yeah, I, I found. Do, that tonight, actually. do it, man. I found out about that. There was um a, the the December special and for Rumor Magazine, which I don't know if you ever you know check that magazine out. It's, uh, they have like a top 200 indie horror films that you have to see. And it's, um, you know, it's like a, I read the thing cover to cover over the holiday. And, uh, the, the criteria was that it couldn't be like a classic film, even, you know, a classic, even though independent film, such as, um, you know, Dawn of the Dead's not in there because that's a classic, well known film. So it's yeah. redundant. It's like everyone's already talked about that movie. Or they'll have some like, some of these sequels to films that are valid, but not the original, because everyone knows about the original. Like, Halloween. Like, everyone, yeah, it's on everyone's list of quality, uh, you know, sort of films. But Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, is something that slips below the radar. So they have that listed on there. But that's how I read about this originally. And then as I was reading this, I was making notes on certain films I wanted to see. You know, I gotta check this out. Mimic 3, I wanna watch, you know. And, um, I went through my Netflix, uh, queue and I just added them and then that red, white, and blue is the one that just really stuck out, you know, as, as a film that I've just been recommending to everybody.
1: You know. Cool.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, if you're looking for something to do, man, check it out. I
1: will check
0: it out. Alright, John, once again, I don't wanna take up too much more of your time. I appreciate it and, um, yeah. yeah, man, we'll. Uh, We'll stay in touch over the World Wide Web. Hell yeah. All right, man. Take care, Mike. Good to see you. Good to see you, John. Take care. So there we are, John Congleton. If you dug the intro music, that's Hans Zimmer off of the Dark Knight soundtrack, and that track's called Gotham's Reckoning. That's like one of the most powerful soundtracks I've heard in a really, really long time. Actually, the soundtracks for all three of those films are pretty awesome. Anyway, I'd like to thank everyone who's uh, been checking out the podcast, reading the blogs. It's been really cool. I'm really happy with all the work that we've been doing. If you're interested in following me on Twitter, it's at Mike Hill HQ. At Mike Hill HQ. And the website is www.everythingwentblackmedia.com. I'm going to leave you guys with an oldie but goodie Bloodlet Eucharist.